You're listening to the Theology Mom podcast. And now, here's Theology Mom, Krista Bontrager. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to tonight's live stream. Happy Wednesday! Usually I'm here on Tuesdays, but today's Wednesday. I hope that by God's grace, you are all staying well in your household and um, God's grace and peace to you tonight. I'm excited to continue, conclude our current teaching series. Tonight is part four in the series that I've entitled The End of the Story. What does the Bible say about the end of the world? And tonight we will be talking to my friend and mentor, Kenneth Samples, about how to handle differences about the end of the world. So before I bring Ken on, I want to review a few key points from this teaching series to help set the stage for tonight's conversation. Throughout this this series, I've been trying to frame the issue of the end of the world within the broader context of the story of scripture, basically God's rescue story. And so I'm trying to get us away from thinking of these events at the quote unquote end of the world are sort of segmented over here by themselves and instead help people understand that, no, this is part of a broader, bigger story that starts in eternity past and extends into eternity future. So in part three of this series, which was last time, I I said that it's almost a misnomer to say that we're talking about the end of the world. Really, what we are talking about is the transition between this age and the age to come and coming into the new creation. So we've been saying throughout this series that that the age to come started, the end started when Jesus was born, according to Hebrews chapter one. And so with his birth, life, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, that inaugurated the age to come. And so we're living in that tension of the now and the not yet that we see there, that that God's kingdom has come in some way And yet we are still living in this creation with death and difficulty and pain and suffering. So that was what we covered in part two. Now in part three, last time we focused on five key issues that I think every historic Christian should be able to agree on when it comes to these events that will transition us from this age to the age to come. So we're going to review those really quick here. Um, We said that there were five key things Christians should agree on. Number one is that Christians ought to expect tribulation and persecution in this creation. Number two, we said that Jesus will come again. Number three, we said when Jesus comes, he will judge the living and the dead. Number four is that when Jesus returns to judge the earth, he will raise all the dead to bodily life. And finally, number five is from the great white throne, humans will go either to everlasting eternal fellowship 
with the triune God in the new heavens and the new earth, or they will go to everlasting punishment and separation from the triune God in the lake of fire. So these are the things that I think Christians should find unity on across denominations, no matter what sort of flavor of Protestant you are, or even a Roman Catholic or my Eastern Orthodox friends. I think that these are the things that can unite us um, as expressed through the historic Christian creeds. So these are the foundational beliefs. We might call these the first order beliefs. These are the, the essentials of the faith when it comes to these end times event, events. So when we get to the end of the story, we arrive in Revelation chapter 21, where it talks about the new heavens and the new earth. And I want to just look at those verses real quick here. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. So this is John seeing this in a vision of the future. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated at the throne said, I am making everything new. Okay, so I want to draw your attention to a couple of themes here that we brought up in our very first episode where we looked at Genesis 1 to 3. What we notice now in Revelation 21 is that there is a new heaven and a new earth. God is the one who's on the throne. The Father is on the throne, and he says he is making everything new. I think it's an interesting way of saying it. He's not say, doesn't seem to be saying that he's making new things. He's making everything new. This kind of sounds like a bit of a renewal of some kind, but that could be a disputed point of, of discussion as to how exactly the particulars of that work. We don't have a lot of details there, but what we do see is that humans are restored to the face-to-face -face dwelling with the presence of God so that they may rule and reign with him. We have this image of the bride Israel was the bride in the, in the old covenant and the church is the bride in the new covenant. And we see this dwelling. So no longer is it a, a tabernacle or a temple where humans must go to dwell with God. It, uh, Jesus came through the incarnation as a temporary dwelling. Holy spirit lives in us today as his dwelling. But one day when we get to the new creation, we will enjoy that face to face fellowship in the presence of God, and we will rule and reign with God, which is really what Adam and Eve's purpose was in the first place. They were created to govern the earth. So all of these threads of the story of scripture come together there in the final moments of the Bible at the end of the book of Revelation. So with all of these things in mind, I'm going to bring my friend Ken Samples on the show. Welcome back, Ken. Good to be with you, Krista. It's good to have you back. Thank you so much for being here. Um, I think that maybe a good place to start is for you to 
Um, well, first of all, most people have seen you before. This is the third time you're on your show on the show. So I'm not going to give a big, long introduction, but uh, maybe you could talk to us about your book called Christian Endgame. Uh, maybe that would be a great place to start by having us tell you could tell us about the book and why you wrote it. Yeah, I, I wrote Christian Endgame back in 2013. It was uh, published in 2013. Interestingly enough, it was the first book uh, published by Reasons, uh, the RTB Press, if you will. And one of the reasons that I wanted to write this book was that when eschatology gets really contentious and when people make serious mistakes about uh, the end of the ages, it becomes an apologetic issue. And so, for example, one of the things that I address in the book is the problem of date setting, that in the 19th century, in the 20th century, we've had people set dates uh, and they were always wrong. And then, of course, non-Christians hear that uh, and they say, wow, uh, Christians are kooky people or the Bible is wrong. So I'm still interested in the question of apologetics when I, when I wrote that book. But I, I wanted it to also be a book where I didn't take a position and tell people exactly what to think. I wanted to really help them to learn how to think about some of the challenging issues relating to biblical eschatology or the, the last things or the end times. That's very good. That's helpful. And I have learned so much from that approach. And in this teaching series, I've really been trying to focus our attention on the things that Christians can agree on when it comes to eschatology. Uh, a phrase that I've heard you use quite a bit is sort of having a mere eschatology approach and the word eschatology just means last things. It's a fancy word that Ken and I paid a lot of money in seminary to learn. So right. I want to make sure we're getting our money's worth here. But uh, so this mere eschatology approach, uh, maybe I could ask you, what do you think of my five points? Do you think I, I have the major issues there? Yeah, I really liked your, uh, I liked your chart. I like the points that you made. Um I think it is very important to communicate to people that as, as, as sharp as some of the differences are in the different millennial views and the different understanding of events, that there really is this kind of mere Christian eschatology. Again, I'm adopting that from C.S. Lewis. And all of the views, all conservative Christians, all uh, Christians that affirm biblical orthodoxy, they accept these truths. And unfortunately, they're almost never discussed. Uh, the things that are discussed are the controversial issues about the tribulation, uh, about the millennium, and things of that nature. But, you know, the idea, at, and I love it that you have already not yet, you're tying in the first coming with the second coming. And, you know, the, uh, the second coming of Christ really is a central biblical teaching. It's even stated in the creeds, so we know how important that is. But I, I like what you've done there. I think it's very helpful. I think what I'm trying to help ground people with is when people come at you with a question of what do you believe about the end of the world? What does the Bible say? Yeah. I always like to kind of flip the conversation instead of starting with, you know, the tribulation and the rapture 
to, well, I like to focus the conversation on what do Christians agree about? What are the things that they have historically believed about last things? And I find that when I start the discussion that way, it usually catches people a little off guard because they often haven't reflected on what unites us because there's so much energy around these more controversial issues. Uh, that's right on target. I mean, you know, if you look at the three branches of Christendom, Orthodoxy, Catholicism, Protestantism, or you look at the, the very popular churches within Protestantism, Lutheran, Baptist, Reformed, Pentecostal, uh, Christians have most of their doctrinal ideas in agreement. And so non-Christians can look at the, the, the disputes and think, well, you know, why should I embrace Christianity when you guys are so divided? But in, but in reality, there is a great deal of common ground in doctrine, in values, and in worldview orientation. So I, I think your approach is, is very helpful, and I, and I think it will, it will solve some of the, the negative energy that comes out of the end-of-the-world debates. Yeah, well, one of the things that we've we've spoken of already that that Christians do disagree about is how to interpret Revelation 20. What in the world is going on there? So John the apostle has this vision of Christians reigning with Jesus for a thousand years. And um I want to put those verses up on the screen for us real quick just so we can orient ourselves. It says I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss um, and holding in his hand a great chain. He sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss, locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshiped the beast or its image and not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, for they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. So it's good to take the time to really read the scripture rather than just talking about it. That way it might be noon. Some of those details are kind of interesting. But, you know, when we think about this, this, thousand years it's popularly called the millennium what can you tell us about the millennium and are there any other scriptures related to to this millennium idea yeah this is certainly the key passage uh there but there are other places both in the new testament and in the old testament that seem to anticipate uh what we would call uh, a millennium uh, millennium, you could define it as a thousand-year period. Uh, there are kind of three basic views of the millennium. Um, and, and again, for the premillennial group, there, there you would have two of them. 
the historic premillennial and the dispensational premillennial, but they would see a thousand year period uh, here, here on the earth. Uh, in terms of the postmillennialists, they're kind of divided a, a little bit. You have uh, kind of the Puritan postmillennialists, and they see it as a long period of time. Then you have kind of the theonomic postmillennialists. They tend to see it more as an exact thousand year period. And then there's a fourth view that's very different than either premillennial or postmillennial. And, and, and of course, the idea there is they're tying the millennium to the event of Jesus's return. So premillennium means that Christ will return prior to this millennial reign, this thousand-year era. Postmillennial, that Christ will come after this thousand years of peace. But the, the other view is called the amillennial view. And of course, in Greek, if you put an A in front of a word, you negate it. A theist believes in God, an atheist believes in no God. Amillennialism says that rather than being a literal thousand-year period, it's actually representative or symbolic of the entire church era. So when Jesus is born, the incarnation, Christmas, the coming of the Lord, uh, from that time all the way until the second coming, uh, that church era is known as the millennium. And so they would be interpreting that pas passage symbolically. Now, now again, uh, one of the reasons why I wrote my book, and one of the things I like to encourage Christians is, I want them to realize that apocalyptic literature is a unique genre within Scripture. It uses lots of symbols. It's not easily interpreted. But there have also been various viewpoints and, you know, I meet Christians frequently, and uh, they are premillennial, and I say, well, what do you think of post-mill and all-mill? And they're almost shocked, like, what does that mean? Um, I think we need to hold our views about eschatology uh, seriously and reflectively, but also tentatively. This is, this is a difficult area to, to uh, interpret. And I, I think that we have maybe too much dogmatism when it comes to that. So here yeah. is that millennial idea, and it's and it's a key idea. I think you, you hit on a couple of key points there that I want to highlight. One is that I think that what all Christians ought to be able to agree on is that we have been designed to rule and reign with Christ. Yes. Like whatever, whenever the millennium happens, because it's, it's, it's the, the dispute is not that we will rule and reign with Christ. The question is, is when are we ruling and reigning with Christ? If, if I understand you that correctly. Very well. That's okay. That, yes, exactly. So we, again, starting with, let's start with what we Christians ought to agree on instead of just scooting immediately to um, explore our differences. And so I'm going to have Bob put this graphic back up here because I think you're absolutely right. I think many of my evangelical friends are not familiar with the amillennial or postmillennial view. So I'm going to start at the bottom on this graphic and kind of work our way up. You did such a, a great job summarizing it, but I want to show it to people one more time because this pre-trib, there's sort of two forms of premillennialism 
There's what most people listening to this show might be familiar with of pre-tribulational millennialism. And this is the idea of Jesus ascends into heaven. We wait for him. Then he descends to earth. And then we have the, the, you know, in between there at some point, we've got the seven year tribulation. Then when he comes back and inaugurates a literal thousand year reign. And then we go to judgment in the eternal state. So that's probably the framework most people are familiar with. But I'm going to have Bob scroll up here to look at historical premillennialism, similar timeline, not as hardcore on the seven-year tribulation antichrist type of scenario from what I understand. These are more like classical premillennialists. So Christ comes back again, a literal thousand-year reign then the judgment, then the eternal state. So we're going to scroll up here to post-millennialism. Now, this this view is kind of on the rise again, Ken. It is. It is. Um, so if any of my uh, viewers have heard of um, Jeff Durbin uh, out in Phoenix, Arizona at uh, Apologia Church, you know, that is, he's a very outspoken post-millennialist. Mm-hmm. Um Doug Wilson and all of his followers up in Moscow, Idaho, post-millennialists. Recently, I don't know if you know this, Ken, but uh, Dr. James White has converted to being a post-millennialist. Wow, wow. Um, and he has been quite uh, transparent about his journey into that. Used to be a, a pre-millennialist. Okay. So, um, you know, there are, this is kind of, to me, on the rise, and which, whereas it had kind of waned. It yeah. was kind of bigger, more in the eighteen late eighteen hundreds, if if I have that right, correct. So uh, this, but in this view, the church age kind of, if I understand it right, kind of gradually, um, for lack of a better term, sort of evolves into the millennium as the gospel goes out, more and more people get saved, and. Um, Communities are changed, nations are changed, so that all the nations are um, under the authority of Christ and become Christianized. W- would that be a fair summary of that? Yes, the postmillennialists believe very strongly that the Great Commission is successful. It's not interrupted by a tribulation period. Uh, the gospel goes forward. It transforms individuals. There's great revival, there's renewal of culture, and whether it's a Puritan version or a theonomic version, there is a period of time, either a thousand years or something of that nature, where the world is transformed. And so rather than a very negative, pessimistic view of trouble that the end of the world will be consumed with tribulation and persecution, the postmillennial view is the idea that the gospel of Jesus Christ and and God's reign will will slowly and gradually take over the earth. Yeah, that's good, and I'm so glad you mentioned that word. They're optimistic about the gospel's triumph. Yeah, because sometimes I think if we were to really categorize these things in a very crass way, we might say the premillennials tend to be more on the side of a little bit more pessimistic that the world will get better. They still think the gospel is going to go out, but they, they do seem to often have a view that the world is 
generally speaking, going to get worse and worse and worse. Yeah. Whereas post millennials tend to be highly optimistic that the even though things look bad right now, I know the end of the story and yeah. uh, the gospel is going to triumph and Jesus is going to, you know, rule. So that would be a very, again, very crass, basic way of of looking at different outcomes and different lenses when you're engaging in pe- with people from these perspectives. Um, now, the amillennial view is uh, an interesting one as well. So in that view, it's looking at the millennium, from what I understand, more symbolically. Yeah. So it would say, if I understand it correctly, that that the Jesus is reigning and ruling right now in some sense, and that one day he will come again, but the church and is already ruling with Christ in some sense. And yet we also do see difficulty and um, death and, and, and that sort of a thing. It, it, anything to help me refine that? Am I on the right track yeah. there? Yes. No, you are on the right track. Uh, so again, we think of this millennium as a, a period of Christ's reign a millennialist, some would say that it is Christ reigning in heaven with the martyrs. Others okay. would say through the church. Uh, and, and so again, rather than a thousand year period, um, it would again relate to the church era as a whole, that Christ has come uh, and that he, he reigns now. Uh, and, and again, if you think about these ideas in terms of the context of church history, you, you alluded to the idea in the 19th century, the latter part of the 19th century, there was lots of optimism. There was the idea that technology was advancing. We were moving toward peace. Then, of course, the 20th century with the Great World Wars uh, kind of tipped a, a lot of these ideas of, wow, um, it, it seems we're living in, a, in very challenging times. But I would say that uh, if there is a consensus position, it is probably amillennialism. Now, now again, uh, you might want to touch on this uh, a little later in the program, but probably pr- a form of premillennialism was present very early on, maybe in the first, early second centuries, even among some of the apostolic fathers and the church fathers. Uh, later, however, you have somebody like Augustine who writes in in either a amillennial or a postmillennial view. Sometimes it's not easy to know exactly what Augustine thought of this. But I, I think the consensus in church history is the amillennial view, which again, sometimes the church is on the is ascending, sometimes it's descending. Uh, and I think that's probably been kind of the default or the consensus uh, viewpoint. That's really helpful. And I'm glad you brought up those points in history because sometimes historical moments can cause es- different views of eschatology to rise and wane. Yep. So, you know, the optimism of the post-Civil War world of the Industrial Revolution and the Gilded Age and all of these kind of things, I think, played a role in the Second Great Awakening. These played a role in the rise of post-millennialism. And people had a perception 
that the world was getting better and better. But then two world wars happened and we remembered, oh, yes, man is wicked. (laughs) (laughs) And then uh, we saw the rise of premillennialism again. And that's really was the view that was dominant in my grandparents' generation, you know, listening to Louis T. Talbot on the Biola Hour during the war, um, they were very, um, became very committed to a premillennial dispensational perspective. But I, I think that there is a connection to that in, in the era in which they lived, that, that times were very hard and that there was a thought of the world is getting worse and worse. The world is a scary place. And so that view became, you know, a little bit more popular. So that's important to, to reflect on. So um, I think though your point is also well taken that historically speaking, the majority position has been amillennialism. So keeping all of those things in their own context and, and, proper place. Um, do you think, do you see the, the millennium as a topic that it ought to be a first order or primary belief for Christians? Or do you see that more as a topic of, you know, healthy conversation, Bible study, um, you know, as more of a secondary issue? Yeah, that's, that's a really thoughtful question, because if you define it more in terms of affirming that Christ is or will reign, that's a very critical idea. But if you then move to the question of what is the nature of that reign and the timing of that reign, then I think that's far less important. I mean, again, if you look at both the Apostles and Nicene Creed, he'll come again to judge the living and the dead. If we, if we think of a creed as being kind of essential components of historic Christianity, that Christ will return is a lot more important than the, the how and the when. And so uh, as, as important as the reign is, I think, uh, again, the timing and the definition of the millennium is up for dispute. And again, I think that should tell us something. What I try to do in my little book is I say, look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to identify the strengths and weaknesses of these millennial views. And that's exactly what I do. I don't tip my hand. I simply say, I think here, here is the strength of a premillennial perspective. Here is the challenge that I do that for post mill and and all mill, and I think Krista that will give us that'll give us some kind of uh, perspective on all of these things, mm-hmm. and I like it that you're helping your listeners to to think through. You know how critical is this? Is can I differ with other Christians on this and and still remain you know appropriate in my relations? So I, I really. Uh, appreciate that you're doing this series. I think it's yeah. great. Well, thank you. And I, I like how you framed that because um, this is such an, an, it helps us to, to differentiate. All right. What's essential that Jesus will reign. We're, we're totally clear. We can find agreement across the board on that. 
when and how and what that looks like. That's a that's a fun conversation over coffee. That's a Bible study. That's a, 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 a an animated discussion of or debate. You know, we can have all of those things, but we're not going to separate fellowship as brothers and sisters in Christ over that. Now, you and I are both very Anglican, sympathetic, Anglican-leaning, traditional Anglican. Um, so I'm guessing that you probably lean more toward an amillennial perspective, you personally. I, I think the strength of an amillennial view is, in many ways, it's, it's simplicity. Um, mm-hmm. it, it, it is, I think, the simplest, uncomplicated view. Now, its strength, though, though also may lead you then to the, the question of its weakness. Can we really see the millennium in very symbolic terms? Now, like you, I, uh, I have great respect for authority in church history and the fact that many of the greatest Christian theologians affirmed amillennialism. It carries weight with me. Uh, and yet, the ultimate question is, uh, is, is this the teaching of Holy Scripture? Right. So I, uh, I, I try to hold uh, the speculative views about eschatology lightly, but if I were to say, I think I, think I lean toward an amillennial perspective. Yeah, that's, that's really helpful. And I, I think for me, um, I like the simplicity of amillennialism. I love the optimism of postmillennialism, yes. that the gospel will triumph. And so that's very much like people probably hear that in my teaching when I talk about things is, you know, that, that optimism. And so I like that, that part of it, that mm-hmm. Christ will reign. Now, am, is my conscience totally convinced it's going to be for a thousand years on the earth? I hold that very, very tentatively, but I like that part of that perspective of, of the optimism that the gospel will triumph. I, I, I like, I like that, <laughs> but I also want to have a place for the Jews as a, as a distinct people. And so in that way, some of my views is sympathetic toward premillennialism. So I'm this weird hybrid, but yeah, I, I, I like to understand all the views. I like that. And I, uh, you know, uh, Gerald McDermott is an Anglican theologian. He's written about the nation of Israel and he's kind of challenged me to, to reconsider uh, what the church's view is about the nation nation of Israel, uh, I th- I think that that's very important. In fact, the other day I was listening to Handel's Messiah, and I I said on my Facebook page, whenever I listen to that, the my inner post millennial comes out. <laughs> that's good. All right, I'm gonna go to the questions or the comments real quick. See if there's anything we want to pick up, and then we're gonna move into the tribulation and all of that stuff from that particular version of millennialism. Bob's going to help us check. Okay. Thank you, Laura, for posting the link to the graphic. I appreciate that. Jeff Durbin was my intro into post mill. Very good. I, I think he's, he's done a good job of popularizing the view. That's for sure. And translating it for regular people. And, and another leading post-millennial theologian is John Jefferson Davis at Gordon Conwell. Oh. He takes more of a Puritan view than a, um, you know, a, a, a viewpoint, a theonomic. He doesn't hold theonomy, but he's post-mill. I like John Jefferson Davis. That's yeah. very good. Yeah, we're using his little text on 
Bible basics in uh, the theology class I'm teaching right yeah. now. So, all right, so let's move into the tribulation. And I'm we did the millennium views first because now we're moving into a discussion about a very particular flavor <laughs> of right. the millennium. So it was that that bottom one that we saw on the graphic. It's it's this um pre-tribulational premillennialism. So this is a particular flavor of of millennialism that we're going to focus on here. And um so I I think that even many non-Christians have heard some rumblings about something called the tribulation. Sure. So maybe we should start there, Ken. What what is the tribulation? Yeah, so both of the premillennial perspectives and and to some extent the amillennial view would see biblical ex- eschatology in describing the end, the, the the coming, the things that will precede the second coming of Christ that there will be great turmoil in the world. Um, You know, wars and rumors of wars, uh, famines. Um, You know, uh, my parents were World War II Depression-era kids, um, economic challenges. And and so uh, you could combine that as well with persecution. So in the the two premillennial views and the amillennial view, they see the end as moving in a very challenging and pessimistic way. Uh, that's those two then are very different than the postmillennial perspective, and so uh, there are lots of discussions about uh, when, where the church will be during this time of tribulation, of persecution, difficulty, famine. Uh, of course, the the unique feature of the historic uh, premillennial or classical premillennial, they see this rapture and the second coming as the same reality. It's the dispensational unique feature that says during prior to the tribulation, there will be a, a catching up the, of the church, but that's distinct from the second coming. Let's, let's unpack that a little bit because what Christians can agree on is that we will live through times of tribulation. And you could make the argument, I think, that Christians have always lived in tribulation. Ever since Peter and John got arrested on the temple steps in Acts chapter 3, you know, there has been trouble for the church. And some of our, our brothers and sisters, for example, in Egypt, have been under persecution for over a thousand years. And so we know that the world hated Jesus long before it hates us. And so there's a sense in which that was the, the very first thing that I said all Christians ought to agree about is that the world will, um, you know, be against us, that there will be times of tribulation and we've always been in that posture. Now, we in America have enjoyed, and in some countries in the West, have enjoyed the privilege for the last couple hundred years of living in a in a country that loosely based on some free principles that have allowed us to live in peace right. in, in our religion. But that's not a biblical guarantee that that's always going to going to be the case. 
So we have to be sober minded as Christians. And as we're raising our children, especially now as a, as a worldview minority of maybe only 4% of, of millennial parents um, have a biblical worldview according to Barna. So we are a worldview minority. So we ought to expect difficulty. On the other hand, there is the version of the tribulation um, that it's seven years in in duration. And that, from what I understand, is a more distinctive feature of the premillennial view. Would that would that be accurate? I think that's right. Uh, the the amillennial interpretation would see an antichrist and would see a period of tribulation. But I I think you know the dividing three and a half and three and a half and and the bringing in the rapture component is is again. A, a stronger feature of, of dispensational premillennialism. Okay. I, I, I would say a couple more things about this idea of tribulation. I, I appreciate that you've brought us again back to church history because the early, you know, the first century, the church suffered a great deal. And um, even, even later, there is the challenge of paganism, uh, then the coming of Islam. And so in the Eastern Orthodox, the Egyptian church, the Coptic church, They've faced not only uh, persecution from, uh, you know, a, a very uh, aggressive Islam, but also the coming of secularism and communism. So the church has been up and, it, and it's been down. And a, another term we haven't yet talked about is preterism. Some interpretive views say, well, maybe some of these eschatological issues, particularly persecution, maybe that was fulfilled in the first century rather than everything being fulfilled, you know, in the in the last uh, portion of your eschatological perspective. Yeah, that, that's a whole other thing. I didn't even think about covering that. But yes, yeah. that is a whole other school of thought. Yeah. So. While we're on the subject of the rapture, I, I think that that is a, a, a thing that's often confusing for many evangelicals. Maybe they don't know the difference between the rapture and the second coming. Yeah. So maybe we should differentiate that a little bit and then talk about even these subsets under the rapture, pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, right. you know, that you know now we're really digging down in, into different views. Yes. So the historic pre-mill, classical pre-mill, they would say that people are caught up. This is the rapture. But the idea there in the historic pre-mill is is like we are caught up and then we'll usher in, just as people in the ancient world would go out to receive their king and kind of usher him in. So historic pre-mill and and amill as well, sees the rapture and the second coming as as being the same event. The dispensational premillennial view differentiates it. There is a rapture of the church, and that's distinct and different than the second coming. And within that dispensational framework, that rapture can be placed either prior to the tribulation uh, after the tribulation or in the middle of the tribulation. And uh, again, that receives so much attention. Uh, so so you, hear, you hear about it frequently. 
Yeah. So this is when we're talking about tribulation in this context, we're talking specifically about this seven year tribulation, right. not more broadly of, you know, what we've seen in church history. Correct. So when somebody comes up to me and they say, um, you know, are you a pre-tribulation rapture person? And I'd be like, probably not, but maybe let's first start the conversation by talking about what we probably agree about. Yeah. And that's how I like to turn that table a little bit on people because I had people writing to me before I started doing this series when they just saw the marketing announcement that I was doing something on the end of the world. They're like, well, what's your position on the, are you a pre-tribulational rapture person? Otherwise I'm not going to listen. And I'm thinking, Oh boy. So, you know, how do I, how do I keep them in the conversation a little bit? Because I, and I would love to hear your perspective on this because for me, the kind of Hal Lindsey, Tim LaHaye version of dispensational premillennialism, where we're going to parse out, you know, the, um, the rapture, pre-trib rapture, you know, this is what this, this is. If we start making that the primary thing, yeah. for me, that feels like we're making an issue of secondary importance and launching it into the realm of being of primary importance. But I'm wondering what you think about that. Oh, I, I completely agree. I, I mean, um, you know, I, I, I think about historic Christian doctrine, um, uh, what about the Trinity? What about the Incarnation? What about the Atonement, the Resurrection? It, it's certainly true that the Bible has a lot to say about the end of the world, the end of the ages. Uh, one biblical scholar suggested that there were more references to the Second Coming in the New Testament than there is to the Atonement. Now, that kind of, you know, it made me look and say, wow, that's the New Testament really does have a lot to say about eschatology. But I think you're exactly right. I, I think sometimes secondary issues end up being viewed as, as out of proportion. And, um, you know, I, I, I think that in, in evangelicalism, and we've had some very popular uh, pastors and writers and teachers. I mean, I've, I've met Hal Lindsey, I've met Chuck Smith, I've met a number of people that have been very popular who sold millions of books. I mean, uh, The Late Great Planet Earth was a remarkable selling book. Um, but I think sometimes we allow these views to, to be perpetuated in a way where they don't find a, a, a proper balance. And, and, and again, some people who are not Christian can perceive these things and say, well, people have said, I mean, Harold Camping said, uh, Hal Lindsey said, uh, as an apologist, I think about this and I wonder, what do non-Christians think of this? How do they understand it? And uh, again, that's really the reason I wrote my little book, I wanted to do what you're doing here, and that is educating people. But I also wanted to point out that if you, if you do eschatology badly, you end up with apologetic problems. That's that, well, There's so much there I want to unpack because I think that um, the way I think about pre uh, dispensational premillennialism, it could be correct. Yeah, it could be. It, it might be correct. Right. 
Um, they might be right if you get the big chart up and all the, you know, all the things, you know, from Daniel through Revelation, that all might be correct. I, I'm, I hold it tentatively. I, I'm, I'm not persuaded that every single jot and tittle of that framework is correct, but I so appreciate that stream drawing my attention anew to issues related to my Jewish brothers and sisters oh, yeah. and, and, and causing me to, to reflect more deeply on, on God's plan for them and, and his, his eternal relationship with them. I, I, I appreciate that. And I think that I don't in any way want to denigrate those people. I, I'm just trying to call our attention to carefully differentiate between what are the things that we can unify around as Christians that we have historically unified around? Not that Krista and Ken got in a room and we decided these are the things we're going to unify around. This, these are the things that Christians, you know, from the Apostles' Creed forward have, have kind of said, yeah, these are the major. We're going to, if we're going to major on the majors. Here's the five things we're going to major on, you know. But, but when we think about vaulting, you know, a belief like a pre-tribulational rapture as a first order issue, I think that can be quite, that can become quite confusing oh, yeah. uh, for, for many people. And, and then the apologetic issue that just leads me right there is that when I talk to unbelievers, when I talk to my brother, who's a member of the LDS church, the more I can say, here are the things that Christians agree on. I'm sorry that the Christians who have interacted with you prior to now, like they want to focus on all of these tertiary issues. I'm happy to engage with you in that conversation, but I'd love to start the conversation on what unifies Christians across denominational lines. That's powerful for them because often they've never encountered somebody who's willing to, to think of it that way. I, I like to talk about three words, truth, unity, and charity we're called to contend for the truth. Uh, we are called to study scripture, to understand it, to stand, to align our beliefs with these truths. And yet uh, we're also called to, to unify. Uh, Jesus prayed to the Father that his church would be one as he and the Father were one. Uh, these are challenging issues. Apocalyptic literature is not an easy genre to understand and apply. There are differing points of view. Thoughtful, reflective people have taken different positions. And then that third word that is, is so very important, and that's charity, that, that we would respond to each other in a, in a charitable and in a gracious way. So absolutely, um, you know, Again, from an apologetic point of view, I had an atheist say to me, Ken, I like your arguments for the truth of God's existence, but Christianity, which one? And you right. guys can't agree. Yeah. Now, this makes me wonder, as you have worked at two major apologetics ministries in your decades of, of service, I'm wondering, you know, how have you encountered or handled agreements about end times issues with colleagues? I mean, have you had colleagues? Did you all see end times issues the same? Or have you enjoyed some robust Bible study and conversation about that with them? You know, I was just saying to someone today that, um, you know, part of my education came through a liberal arts college in Orange County 
uh, Concordia University, which is uh, a Lutheran Church, Missouri Senate school. Well, they were amillennial, but I, through my, in, my interaction with Walter Martin at the Christian Research Institute, I adopted a premillennial view. So I was kind of going back and forth with them. Then when I took my master's degree at Biola, uh, they were premillennial, and I was bringing up the arguments my Lutheran friends had used against me. And so in one sense, I thought, uh, wow, I... I'm, I'm never kind of in the consensus, but I thought that's the best education I could get because I was always being challenged. Of, of course, at RTB, the, the scholars and uh, other staff members take differing positions. Uh, we stand very strong on the idea that the second coming is a critical biblical truth, a part of historic Christianity. But, you know, we, we recognize uh, the things we've been talking about here, that uh, uh, these are challenging issues and, and Christians are going to disagree about them. Yeah, that's good. Um, now, you've mentioned a couple times your concerns about date setting. I think we should tease that out a little bit more because some people watching might not be familiar with that term. So what do you mean by date setting? And then And then who are some prominent people who've engaged in date setting and, and what are concerns do you have about that? Yeah. Well, uh, you know, let's, I see Craig walking in the background there. <laughs> okay. I'll be, I'll be ready to leave in just five minutes. Okay. Let me, uh, let me address your wonderful, your wonderful question. Um, you know, in the 19th century, there were a number of non-Christian groups that arose in America I'm thinking about, you mentioned the Latter-day Saints. We could talk about Jehovah's Witnesses. We could talk about uh, Seventh-day Adventism. Now, the Adventists, in my view, have become more orthodox over time, but the Adventists and the Jehovah's Witnesses came into being really about eschatological issues. So William Miller in the 1840s, he's a New England Baptist minister, kind of the Hal Lindsey, Chuck Smith of the time, if you will, very popular, very articulate. He predicted that the Lord would come in 1844. And of course, uh, they say the day came, but the Lord didn't. And there was this great embarrassment. There was, uh, you know, people thought this is, we're right on the cusp of seeing the second coming. It, it didn't happen. So the witnesses uh, and the Adventists reinterpreted those ideas. The Jehovah's Witnesses have predicted a number of times that Christ would come. Now, moving forward, probably the biggest, biggest uh, prediction, Harold Camping, who, by the way, came from a Reformed background, and, uh, you know, in the 1960s, he was solidly uh, reformed in his theology, a thoughtful person, but he slowly and gradually began to see himself as kind of uh, uniquely gifted to interpret the Bible, and he predicted the second coming twice. So I say in my little book, Christian Endgame, every time anybody has set a date, they have been wrong. And therefore, the next time somebody sets a date, they're going to be wrong. Jesus says explicitly that nobody knows the timing of his second coming. And I think that's a lesson we really need to, we need to learn, because um, I, I even think sometimes we let people off too easily 
when they do things like this. Uh, and so, you know, we need to get out of the enterprise of setting dates. We need to emphasize the things you're talking about, that the Lord is going to come, uh, that, he is going to, that he is going to raise the dead. He's going to judge humanity. Uh, we're going to see a new creation. And then, of course, many of the things about uh, our living for Christ now. Uh, really, when the Bible talks about the second coming, it says that should mean that you are pursuing godliness and holiness. You are, you are living a life of purpose and commitment to the kingdom of God. So the dates and the timing, that's not what we should focus on. What we should focus on is our devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know what? It is possible that tomorrow or the next day, things could lead to the, uh, to the eschatological end. So again, I uh, appreciate the series you're doing. I, and I think a lot of evangelicals will learn a lot from it. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us, Ken. Uh, I think you've given us a lot of very practical help in uh, that we can use as we're engaging with our family and friends on end times issues and to f- keep the main thing, the main thing and go. how to have charity on, on those things that we differ on. So thank you so much for, for helping us out with this. My pleasure. Glad to be with you. Take care. God bless. Bye-bye. Okay. So as we're kind of wrapping things up here, I wanted to share just as, as a wrap up, uh, thought for this whole teaching series. I wanted to share a concern that I have that I see on social media all the time. I run into this all the time whenever I talk about these issues about the end um, is what I'm going to call escape pod theology. And there is a pervasive, um, I think, attitude among a lot of evangelicals of what the the moment that we're living in right now is too hard. I really hope the Lord comes soon. Um, I want to escape out of here. I, I think there's absolute biblical warrant for saying, come Lord Jesus. We ought to wake up every day with that posture of looking for the Lord's return. I'm not in any way denigrating that. That's a biblical idea. But what my concern is about is about this kind of escape mentality that I can I can just kind of divorce myself from these uncomfortable places that the culture is going to and um just kind of leave the culture to 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 degrade, you know, and and to self-destruct. The optimism of post-mil- the post-millennial view teaches us that the gospel triumphs. The gospel changes hearts. The gospel changes lives. The ebb and flow of 2,000 years of Christian history, if nothing else, ought to teach us that we don't know when Jesus is coming. And we ought to be prepared and thinking ahead two generations down the line in our parenting. I want to parent my children the way I want my children to parent my grandchildren. That's how an informed Christian thinks. They can hold intention at the same time. I wake up every day and I say, come Lord Jesus. 
and I wake up every day and I say, how will I bring the gospel near? How will I boldly proclaim the gospel? Because I believe it is the power of God to salvation, that it can supernaturally change hearts and minds and lives. And how will I parent my children thinking ahead to generations that my children will want and need a good education today so that they can parent and educate their children, my grandchildren later. See, this is the way that we have to think because when we look at communities like um, churches who have been persecuted for centuries They did not have escape pod theology. They did not have escape pod thinking and mindsets. Yes, they are just trying to survive, but they also got married, had families, created culture, built churches, planted new churches, preached the gospel. So we, if you find yourself falling into this, this, this pessimistic place in on, on a regular basis it's time to teach the gospel preach the gospel to yourself first of all it's time to preach the gospel to yourself and to 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 start checking yourself as to how you're thinking and if you're falling into a pessimistic point of view so i i think that that is just a word that i want to leave you with as this series comes to a close. I hope you have found the framework that Ken and I worked on tonight and, and helped develop a little bit more. hope you find it helpful as you try to navigate this, this often um, emotional topic, difficult topic with those in your life, uh, and that you have found this whole series to be helpful in helping you think more broadly about the end times, that it's not just the end times that we're talking about. We want to put it in the context of the overall story of the Bible. Well, I'm going to put a bookmark there for now. And um, I want to give you a quick sneak peek into the content I have planned for March. Um, I'm going to be doing another interview with my friend uh, and Christian therapist, Andrew Rodriguez. We're going to be talking about the question, my child just told me they're gay. Now what? Andrew is a therapist. He does a lot of work with same-sex attracted clients, and he's going to offer some wisdom on that difficult topic, specifically for parents and teachers, youth pastors, children pastors, and that kind of a thing. So you won't want to miss that. Then um, later in the month, I'm going to be dropping an interview with my friend Joe Dallas about conversion therapy. Now, conversion therapy has recently been outlawed in Canada, and I think Today or yesterday, it was outlawed in France. So I want to take us on a deep dive into that topic so that you're going to be informed about how to discuss the issue of conversion therapy, the myths and the truths about it with family and friends. I want to say thank you for joining me tonight. Make sure to share this podcast with a friend and the entire teaching series uh, with uh, someone in your church, a leader in your church your small group leader or your small group members. Uh, I hope you find it helpful. Take care. Good night and God bless. 
Be sure to follow Theology Mom on Facebook and like, comment, and subscribe on YouTube. Don't forget to catch Krista next week for more theology fun on Theology Mom and all the things. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.